over to you, Amy. Thank you for joining us today, Anthony. Thank you so Thank much, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah, and uh, good to join you, Amy. I'll, I'll kick off by doing a quick intro. So uh, as Sarah mentioned, Senesis' mission is to change the lives of individuals and organisations for the better every day. We do that through the application of psychology and neuroscience to help organisations improve their culture and therefore their safety outcomes. So it's our great pleasure today to be sharing some of our research findings that we've been able to co collect from a bunch of different organisations um, over the last number of years from the mining sector. Uh, this information is particularly powerful and useful because of the broad span that it draws from uh, and, and some of the really precise insights that it provides as well. So the way we're going to tackle today's session is um, Amy's the SME, she's our head of psychology at Centus and, and she was one of the key people uh, who did the research and dove into the insights. So she's going to help us unpack some of those insights today so that we can hopefully provide some useful uh, things to consider uh, as a result uh, of this webinar. Also uh, posted in uh, along with this webinar will be a copy of the full resource, uh, which is quite a detailed resource that has a lot of recommendations in it. That'll be sent out to you, but you can also jump on Senus's website, uh, senus.com.au if you wanted to, you can't hold out. Uh, for that moment. So we're going to tackle the session in these four steps up on the screen. We're going to first of all understand the data. We're going to uh, look at where the data came from and how we can make sense of it. We're going to look at the key highlights of the data and then we're going to tap into some, some strengths and opportunities and some considerations uh, in, in using information in a useful way. Cool. Thanks, Sam. Uh, just to let everyone know, we've got a few polls and a few chats that might come up throughout the session as well. So we'd love it if you'd engage and give us your answers and type in any questions as well into the Q&A option in Zoom so that we can have some time at the end to answer those. Right. It's really wonderful to have the depth of data that Centus has and the opportunity to be able to analyse this data and share the insights with everyone today is uh, a privilege because it's the, the sort of data that a lot of people would probably fight over to be able to spend some time um, unpacking, particularly from that academic background that I have. So it's been very exciting to be able to sit and look at, at some of the stories that we can tell from this data. Uh, to give you a bit of background, um, we've had over 21,000 mining employees complete our safety climate survey, and we've included over 5,000 of them in a stratified sample for the study. So we stratify our data to make sure that there isn't a single organization or in the case of our broader benchmarking data set to make sure there isn't a single industry that's being overrepresented, which means we can have more confidence when we interpret the data that it's generalizable. So you'll see down the right hand side there some demographics about where this data has come from. Um, and the sort of people who've participated in our safety climate survey. And you'll see there's a big range in terms of ages. There's a range in terms of tenure, amount of time that people have spent in the mining industry with the majority with quite a long tenure and a moderate length of time with their particular current organization. And you can see the data also comes from frontline workers right up to executive management. It's really um, important before I jump into sharing some of the results that we all understand um, how to interpret some of these numbers and what our different categories mean. And I thought we'd start off by explaining briefly what the safety culture model is. 
So you can think of safety culture as the way things are done around here in relation to safety. So that could be around people's attitudes, values, beliefs that they share within the organization about the way safety is done. And this really creates sort of a guidance um, within particularly frontline workers about what's important about safety and how they're expected to behave. And the safety culture model for Centus includes four main components, the people factor, practices, the environment, and surrounding all of those, the different levels of leadership within the organization and the role that they play in building and maintaining safety culture. So it's really important for organizations to invest across all four areas to effectively manage safety and create that positive and strong safety culture. Obviously, it's a bit more complicated than just these four dimensions. So we've got 24 um, sub dimensions that sit under these four broad categories. But it's just a, a nice way to start out understanding the different sorts of things that we're looking at when we talk about safety culture. Uh, so our safety climate survey lets us tap into the perceptions that people hold about the way safety is managed and reflects that underlying safety culture of the organization. So as we walk through the data, you'll see some um, quotes and comments that will have come out of our culture diagnostics. And you'll also see um, some numbers and figures that will have come from our safety climate survey. On the left-hand side of the slide here, you'll see the way that we categorize and interpret the data. So positive perceptions are at the top end of our response scale. So that means that the, um, if your average falls here, you've got the majority of people uh, falling into that agree or strongly agree range of their responses to that dimension. If they're falling into the fair range, then they're in that slightly agree range. And into that negative range means that they're falling into that neutral or below all the way down to strongly disagree. So that's where we're more likely to see that poorer safety performance. And that's where we're more likely to be able to identify room for improvement in that negative and fair range. Uh, the other thing that's worth mentioning at the start is you'll see a comparison to benchmark. And that's a comparison based on that wider stratified sample from a broad range of industries um, 63 organizations from memory uh, right around the world and it includes uh, industries such as construction, agriculture, healthcare, manufacturing and utilities just to name a couple of them. And so it's a really great opportunity to compare where the mining sector is sitting compared to that overall benchmark. Um, but it is worth noting that that benchmark is the average of um, organizations that have completed the safety climate survey. So it isn't what you should be aiming towards, but it's a good sense of how are other organizations performing on the same measure. So um, it's just a nice thing to compare. Are we going better than or worse than the average? Does that all sound reasonable, Ant? Haven't rushed through that too quickly for Hi. everyone. Perfect, Danny. Cool, lovely. So just before we get into looking at some of the key highlights from the report um, and reviewing how the mining industry is tracking, um, we'd love to just get a quick sense from you all how you think the mining sector is tracking. So we've got a quick poll that should pop up on your screen um, within Zoom. And we'd like to know um, how you think the mining sector compares to our cross-industry benchmark. So do you think the mining sector is worse than similar to or better than our overall benchmark average. So while that's popping up there, thanks so much, Sarah. We'll give people time to pop in their answers. Um, and it's just an interesting chance to check in and see what the sense of people in the audience is. Okay, yeah, just a couple more um, seconds. 
and there we go. I'll share that now. Thank you. Excellent. Bit of a spread, bit of a spread there, Amy. So similar to uh, fifty percent, and then split between worse than and and better than. So which. Uh, if we if we jump through and have a look at the actual results, we had to give people some additional information about that. So, Amy, how does the mining sector stack up? Yep, so pretty spot on um, in terms of the, the audience's estimation. So we can see here our benchmark results sitting at about that 86%. Um, of mining sites operating from that negative safety culture. Oh, sorry, 86% is our benchmark and 88% of our mining work sites are operating from that negative safety culture. So pretty much similar to maybe slightly worse than the average. Um, so in that range. And so it's a really good opportunity, I think, today to have a look at what might be driving this and what we might be able to do about it. Cool. So Amy, just to give people some context, if you move to the next slide, we can talk really quickly about this concept of what is a negative versus a positive safety culture. So uh, the left-hand side broadly represents a negative safety culture. So this would be a culture that is typified by blame, avoidance of responsibility. It's maybe more complaining and, and problem focused. So typically in sentence language, we would say this is more of an externally locus culture. So people aren't taking ownership and responsibility of cho their choices and therefore safety. And this tends to radiate beyond safety if you're getting this result and you tend to see this in other parts of the operation as well. On the right hand side is what we've seen more of a positive safety culture. That is typically a culture which is identified by people taking ownership and responsibility, asking what their contribution or particular result is, uh, and, and generally seeing that their role in safety contributes not only to their own ability to go home safe, but the ability for others to go home safe as well. Now, the reason that uh, organisations typically come to us is because they find themselves obviously with, with a problem to solve, which is in that, that left-hand side of, of the table here. And the way that I, I encourage organisations to think about culture is if, well, if you reflect on your own experience in organisations, I'm sure most of us on the call will have operated within one of one or both of these cultures at different times. Now, if you have someone who is operating from a green attitude or that right-hand side accountability attitude and you put them inside that left-hand red sort of culture, what we typically see is one of a couple of things happen. One is they either join the rest of the people and go along and, and probably adopt more of a, a red zone themselves or they they, they can push back and they can resist for a period, but often they push back and resist for a period until they end up leaving, uh, leaving the organisation, find something which more aligns to them and their values. On the right-hand side, however, uh, what we tend to see is, obviously, if you've got someone who's similar, they, they join, but someone who joins that culture from a red space will typically either be pulled into the green or also be uh will for whatever reason won't last in that organizational context for for a long time now as human beings one of the unfortunate things is not we're not necessarily wired to take accountability and responsibility from from day one and any parents on the call you know uh, and the example i often use if i've got my two ki three kids playing in a room together and something breaks and i go in and say who did that they're not typically saying, oh, that was my fault, dad. They're, they're pointing at each other and saying, no, it was their fault for these reasons. And 
So we are dealing with a little bit of people's natural biases to avoid uh, the pain or avoid uh, the potential conflict attach, uh, attached to accountability and responsibility. So if you're not deliberately designing your culture to be on the right-hand side and to be in that green zone space, the chances are you're probably going to end up with whatever culture you get. And that is typically, it typically falls into that red space. So what the reason organisations come to us is they want to get information and data that supports them to make strategic and tactical decisions. They're going to move their cultural dial. Uh, that, that are going to give them a culture by design to help them achieve both their safety and operational outcomes. So the benchmarking pieces are really interesting, Amy. You know, people like to benchmark themselves against industry and and, and those, and that's great. But what we really probably encourage more is to benchmark yourself against yourself uh, and look at where are you now and where do you want to get to and, and are you making positive progress? And again, that's another big reason that people engage with surveys like this one is because you can track your performance and improvement over time. So uh, hopefully that gives a bit of context uh, to the, the concept of positive versus negative safety culture. Amy, I'll, I'll flick mm -hmm. it back to you now. Yeah, lovely. Thanks, Anne. And I will say it's really fulfilling when you do get that opportunity to run that analysis on that repeat survey and be able to tell that story of these are this is where your efforts really paid off and and your focus and your attention and being able to present that back as as change and shift is really nice yeah lovely uh, so we'd love to hear from the audience in the chat about what they think the mining sector does well so if you've got any thoughts around that we'd love you to pop it into the chat um, at Centus, we know the power of focusing on the positive and hunting the good stuff. So we'd love to start there by hearing from you about what you think the mining sector does particularly well around safety and when building safety cultures. So Ant, what do you think in your experience of being out there are some of the key strengths that you've seen? Um, look, uh, what I tend to see is in high hazard environments, um, such as those in mining scenarios, um, you'll see the people on the ground generally being aware and being conscious of that. And, and because they may have been exposed to significant incidents occurring within the space or within the industry, they can sometimes be a little bit more proactive in, in, in trying to look out for, for their mates. Um, now that might not always translate into um, positive relationships with management, that's a, that's a whole different different outcome. But sometimes you do see that that people will, will, will take that greater ownership because they see that the hazard has been more directly dependent upon themselves. What, what's the data tell us, Amy? Yeah, lovely, thanks. Um, so in terms of thinking about our safety culture model, we can look at um, our, our people, our environment, our practices, and our leadership components. And the person component is something that comes out really strongly for the mining industry. Um, and so this is focusing on um, the way the teams might care for each other, the way they're motivated to talk about safety, um, and the way they, they treat safety as being important as their own role and something that they hold everyone accountable to. So we know the person component in our safety culture model is one of the driving factors if there is an unpredictable situation that might arise um, in determining how things might get managed, 
Um, and it also predicts how employees influence each other, hold each other to account if somebody lets the standards slip a little. Um, and that's where we see that sense of that safety culture being reinforced as well here. And so it's really nice in this data, we can see that the, the mining sector is sitting above benchmark on a couple of these um, items here around talking regularly to each other about safety, about participating in safety activities. Granted, there's still some space for improvement in some of these, but it's worth acknowledging the strengths here where they are and the work that's gone in within teams and by supervisors of those teams to really work it at having those good safety conversations. Lovely. The other one that's coming through as a strength, Amy, if we move on to the next slide, is that, that idea of contractor relations. So um, safety meetings that, that include um, participation from contractors, are thorough inductions, and um, when safety issues come, it's like contractors are, are not automatically blamed. Mm -hmm. So this has been a big area of focus, I know, the mining sector for a long time because they have been so heavily dependent on, on on the contractor workforces perhaps more so than other industries that are now starting to become more heavily reliant although my experience is that this contractor relations can be very much um, site dependent so we do see some sites where um, they're managing contractors exceptionally well and and mm -hmm the experience is very, very similar, but there are still some sites um, where there, there's a lot of work to do. And it was only a few years ago, I went onto one site and they had a canteen on, on, one, of the, on, on one of the sites and they had different prices of uh, food and drinks for contractors versus full-time employees. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, certainly uh, above benchmark mining here, at, but I would I'd probably, suggest that this is a fairly broad range of of data captured here. Yeah, really good point, Ant. And we've got to remember these are averages, which means that there's organisations that are, are doing beyond and doing better than the averages we're talking about here. But there's also organisations that, that sit at the other side of that and sit doing worse and have more space to improve. Um, and so it is, it is a real challenge, I think, to make sure that that contractor um, management contractor relationship is is built and maintained and you're right you do see places that are doing it really well it is something that we do spend a lot of time talking to our clients about um, and collecting data on and and looking at what change they can make to really improve those relationships right lovely so the next um, section that we're going to talk through is outline some of the greatest opportunity areas that we see in the mining sector and those areas with room for the most improvement. Um, before we do that, Ants just let me know that Stephen's got his hand up. Um, if, there's, if there's a comment, Stephen, it'd be great for you to pop it into the chat. I don't think this um, has the capacity for participants to turn their mic on and ask questions. Um, so if you pop it into the Q&A, then we'll be able to answer that one for you. I've just got a, a question that's come through um, from Janine Lees. How do we get mining companies and all their contracting entities to take a stronger focus on the long latency hazards such as dusts, mm -hmm. uh, um, dust silicosis, loss, yeah. uh, silicosis and, and et cetera, et cetera, yeah. Mm. Yeah, really good, thanks. Good question, thanks, Janine. Um, I think 
it's it's one of those things that's about how is safety prioritized and talked about and if you recognize that that's a hazard for your workforce is it something that is actively managed actively discussed if somebody's not wearing their their um their breathing apparatus and ppe or if someone's not wearing their their um earmuffs or what have you to protect their hearing are they being called out about it or is it something that people sort of shrug their shoulders at and let it slide and it's not a big deal um, and so i think um, in that contracting space it's about treating your contractors perhaps as good as you treat your full-time employees do you think Anne? and making sure that you don't um, have a substandard for them that you let them do what they want rather than um, you know, make sure that they understand this, the standards that you're setting and that they're following those requirements. Definitely. And I think the other big part of this is getting into your safety data and actually having a look at, well, what does the data tell us? And, and not only looking at, well, what are the immediate outcomes of the data? What's the potential of the hazard that our people have been exposed to? Um, so is, you know, exposure to dust, how much of a hazard is that? How much exposure to that hazard do we actually have within the organisation? What is the potential attached to that? You know, complete your bow tie analysis, make sure you've got the right controls in place and, and really encourage, uh, we really encourage a focus on, on what, are the, what are the things that people can do to manage the, the, the hazard as opposed to just identifying that, hey, yeah, dust is, dust is the problem. And unfortunately, uh, you know, these sorts of elements, as with most things when it comes to people and change is, got to say it once then you got to say it again then you got to write it down then you got to hire a blimp and fly it over the maybe not that extreme but you know if these are the hazards and these are the things we want people to be focused on really you know taking every opportunity and using every vehicle at our um that, that that is available to us to reinforce those messages and to focus on what we can do to control those elements yeah excellent thanks janine for posting the question i hope that answers that for you a little bit if you keep going through, I can jump on to the next one here, Amy, yep. and just take a cool. look at it. Yeah. Lovely. Thanks. So we'd love to hear, before we go through our um, opportunity areas that we've identified in our report, we'd love to hear in a quick poll from your experience, which of the following is the most significant area for your business to focus on? So is it production pressure, underreporting, incident analyses? leadership, well-being, or if there's another one that's really come to mind with this question, please add it to the chat and we'll include it in the list. Uh, so these um, five that are up here on the screen in the poll are the five opportunity areas that we've identified in our report on the mining industry from our data. Um, and so I think we will um, go through each of these and, and talk through the results, but we are curious to sort of hear from you all what's important and relevant to your business at the moment. Okay, we're nearly there. That's, um, I'll just give it a couple more seconds. Um, and there's also a question or comment from Stephen Butler, which you might transfer to the chat so everyone can see that. Um, Anthony, maybe I can pop that. Okay. Yeah, I can, I can do that one. Yeah, I can cut and paste it, not a problem. Okay, all right, here's the results of the poll. Lovely, thanks, Sarah. Okay, so again, we've got a, a bit of a spread across all of these areas. Um, leadership sitting at just over half of um, 
the response options here. So being really important, we know how important leadership is, but production pressure and well-being equally about a third as well, under reporting also there for people. That's excellent. Thank you so much for participating in that poll and letting us know um, what's important and what's going on for you in your work. Lovely. So let's start out talking about production pressure. So this is something that is um, really easy to manage when things are going well, when we're not under periods of high stress. Um, but when high workload comes along, when there's a lot that needs to get done quickly, when we might have um, pressure to reach a set standard of production, um, that's where we find production pressure becomes something that's harder to manage. And when we're measuring this, what we're interested in is the sense of pressure people feel to complete the work, even if it might be at the expense of making safe choices or following safety procedures, um, just to get the job done more quickly. Uh, and so we also see the, the leader's role as being really important in the way they send messages around the prioritization of safety or production at various points through, through work completion as well. So you can see here in the comparison to the benchmark, um, the mining industry is sitting above that in overall industry benchmark, which was 15%. We've got 22% of people working in the mining industry who've experienced um, some degree of production pressure over the last three months. And on the right-hand side of the slide here, you can see the demographic split. Um, and we can see that the production pressure is more likely to be um, felt and experienced by people in the front line, and particularly by those in that younger age group as well. Um, and so it's a really, important issue for many businesses and how they focus and prioritize safety when production increases and that requirements on our staff increase. Um, and so it's also strongly related to that sense of safety culture that's broadly felt within the organization in that attitude that people hold towards safety. Another related um, indicator of the maturity of safety culture is this idea of underreporting. So uh, underreporting occurs when people um, fail to um, submit a formal report around a minor or major injury, a near miss, a potential property damage that they've personally experienced. And we collect this data over the previous 12 months and we look at the number of um, incidents that the person's experienced and the number that's been reported. And we also collect information on why they have failed to report. So here we can see that our benchmark is sitting at around the 26%, mining industry sitting at about 25%, so very similar. Um, again, just a reminder that we're not aiming for benchmark here, that is the average within the existing data set. Um, and that definitely um, identifies where we need to be improving things. If one in four incidents are going unreported, it means that the organization is missing out on key information that they need to follow up um, to close the loop, to learn from things that are going on, and it's going to have an ongoing cost on productivity, performance, and output if these incidents um, might turn into something worse because nobody knew about what to do about them. So Ant and I have done a few webinars on underreporting and talked about all the factors that contribute to underreporting, particularly that sense of um, concern or fear about the consequences of reporting, which is what we're going to talk about on the next slide as well. But Ant, do you have anything to add on this one here or on production okay. pressure? 
Oh, look, if you move to the next slide, I think it tie, starts to tie into the comment that Stephen has put into the chat uh, around incident investigations and um, and having strict rules or, or guidelines for how people operate within within organisations. And and um, I do agree, Stephen, that having really clearly set out boundaries and expectations, um, often in line with values, and you know and uh, are important for people to know where they stand and, and what's okay and what's not okay behavior within organizations. And I also agree that, you know, um, the having a known, um, yeah, having a consequence for certain actions that put yourself and, and others at risk, you know, may be an answer to, to make, to make, to make it really clear and to take a stand, a position on, on issues. Mm. The challenge that we see and, and what this data represents um, here is that, um, that not all approaches to incident investigations are consistent, they're not all fair, um, and they're not all managed in a way where, um, uh, they're not all managed in a way where the full suite of organisational and leadership factors are taken into account in regards to the results that are put into place. And, and the byproduct of not running a, a really effective incident investigation process with transparent and fair outcomes are some of the examples that you start to see up on the, on the screen. And you know, to be really frank, you know, we've seen lots of organizations dramatically reduce some of their lag indicators around safety. Now, uh, it, and, and when you sometimes scratch under the surface with some of these surveys, you know, report the safety hasn't actually improved a heck of a lot. Sometimes it's just that people aren't willing to speak up and put their hands up. Um, so it is a fine balancing act between uh, how do we, you know, put a line in the sand around expectations, but also run a process which is fair and transparent that encourages people to share their learnings and, and share their insights, Amy. Yeah, lovely. Thanks, Anne. I think it's um, it's a really big opportunity area for a lot of industries is to look at how they can increase that psychological safety and that trust. Um, you know, that sort of classic saying that trust is easy to lose and hard to rebuild. And that idea that what we're really trying to do with our approach to incident investigations is demonstrate that sense of trust and psychological safety. When you raise a concern, when you identify a problem, when something hasn't been done correctly, um, what are the consequences of that? Or is it really that sense of, of blame and, and the other contributing organisational factors that have made it really hard for you to do anything differently haven't really been taken into account? So it's a, it's a big area for improvement for a lot of organizations for sure uh, just a, a quick example on this one amy i was at a site a, a few years ago without having a lot of issues around trust and the culture had really deteriorated really strong union presence on that site and a big gap between the sort of workforce and, and the senior leadership team when we dug under the surface this incident investigations became one of the key key factors and Again, we only know uh, yeah, we only know what we'd been told, that, but there'd been two employees sacked from this operational site three or four years prior to us getting there. So the uh, the story that had been passed down, I'm calling it a story because I wasn't there and I don't know the detail, is that um, that these two particular um, employees were vocal, 
uh, and had been doing a known workaround that had been a common practice within the site for a range of different reasons, uh, were caught out um, doing this particular practice and it was used as a, an opportunity to remove a couple of the, the perceived troublemakers. And the, the trust issues that radiated beyond that were still, it was like it had happened yesterday um, by the time that we'd got on site. So it is a really important thing to get right um, when, when it comes to, yeah, creating a strong open culture. Yeah, thanks, Anne. I've heard similar stories too and been told by CEOs, you know, that happened 10 years ago. Why are people still talking about it? What, <laughs> what can I do to, to change that? Um, and that, you know, that's the power of stories in organisations, isn't it? New people come in, they talk to others, they hear about what's important. And that's one of the reasons why understanding your safety culture and understanding those stories that are being told in the organisation and the standards, therefore, that sets about behaviour into the future and those norms that it creates for people is, is really, really powerful and you can do a lot with. And, and this is where we see leadership playing such a role, yes. isn't it, Amy? Because Absolutely. when we go through and we look at leadership capability um, to influence a psychologically safe workforce that's high in trust, you can nearly see the, the correlations between the leadership capability in that space and the organisational culture uh, are uncanny. You know, it, they nearly track you know, their correlations. They're not causations. We can't make that delineation, I know, but the, they do track very closely, don't they? Yes, yes, absolutely. And it's one of those things that um, the reason why we can't have that sense of, of a causal direction is they both influence each other, right? So, so leadership is, is having a strong influence, but at the same time, the environment that you're working in is, is changing the way your supervisors or your leaders are choosing to lead as well. And so it's a yeah. great circle. <laughs> it is. And, and you can start to see when you start to piece these pieces, these parts of the puzzle together, how a culture can be created. Because if an incident investigation process isn't viewed as effective, and then senior leaders aren't viewed as being present on site, uh, if leaders aren't seen as consulting the people that are doing the work effectively, uh, if there's a sense that people don't understand the job to be done and the real life pressures that are occurring, then uh, the frame that starts to be built around safety is they only care when something goes wrong um, and when something goes right, it's ignored or it's not seen. And, you know, uh, and, and we're not given a voice. So you can start to see how these dynamics can feed off one another and start to contribute to some pretty unhelpful dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. Leadership's one of my favourite things to talk about because I think it, um, it has such a strong influence over so many different outcomes for organisations and for individuals. Um, and... This, in this um, report here, you can see that sense of disconnect that's coming through the data between the sort of senior leaders and frontline employees in that sense of not having a communication, communication path, in not being able to be consulted around safety, um, in not potentially seeing um, people out on site understanding what the safety issues are for them as well. So that yeah. sense of, of where are the priorities and what's important to my organisation if I don't hear from people or I don't see it being prioritised, I don't see them out there understanding things, um, I think is, is a really important um, role for leaders to be playing. As mm -hmm. a um, effective leadership, it's the idea of, of cascading through an organisation 
that it's it doesn't need to be um, the onus put on an individual, but by setting and role modeling that standard, that cascades down to the level beneath them, which sets and role models that standard, which cascades to that level beneath them. And so it is that opportunity to um, to influence further down the line, even if you're not the, the only person out there doing it. Uh, Amy, just on point number three, to, to sort of mm. call something out here, yep. you can see here that there's a perception um, that, that people are getting pretty good support from their direct supervisors. Yes. However, I would probably argue eight times out of 10 that we get called in to talk to mining organisations the supervisors are the ones who are identified by the senior managers as being the biggest issues in, in the business or the biggest problems mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that need to be fixed mm -hmm. in order to get better safety outcomes and, and drive better performance. What do you think could be happening that there's such a different perspective of supervision from senior managers to the people on the ground? Any yeah, hypotheses? Really good question. Um, I'm going to have a big, caveat there and say it's probably different for every organization mm -hmm. um, but potentially one of the reasons that could be going on is that the supervisors are actively caring about safety but if they're hitting up against a, a more senior team that doesn't have the understanding or potentially the care for safety um, they are potentially labeled as that sort of troublemaker you're making things difficult you're asking for a lot more um, because there's an a disconnect in the values between what the supervisor is trying to achieve in terms of keeping their team safe and their understanding of, of what's important. Um, so that could be one reason. Um, and that's therefore a need to look at the values, um, the prioritization potentially at that more senior le level. At the other end of things, it, it could be um, a lack of understanding from the supervisor's end on the best way to influence some of these things. And so mm -hmm. um, it could be therefore around senior managers providing that sort of feedback and coaching. And, you know, that's a really important idea, but this isn't the best way to raise it. You know, if you, if you take it over here or you talk to blah, that's, that's the best path to get that sort of stuff fixed. Um, and so then the supervisors might learn the, the more appropriate ways to be raising concerns. Um, so there's, there's conflict for all sorts of reasons in organizations, right? Disconnect in values, disconnect in approaches, disconnect in skill levels. Um, so it, it'd be a question for, for what's going on in that particular organization. Organization. Yeah, yeah great. Thanks, yeah. Amy. Yep. Oh, good. Um, so leadership being really important and a, and a good one to talk about. And if people have questions about this, um, this area, 50% of, of you said that this is your biggest issue in your organization. So it's a really, really good one to spend a bit of time talking about today and happy to spend some time in the Q&A at the end if there are more questions that people have too. Um, at this point, we'd um, love to switch over to our last opportunity area, which is in the area of well-being. Um, and so we've got a quick poll for you here about how confident are you to respond to the well-being needs of your workforce? So not at all confident, moderately confident, or very confident. Um, and it's certainly well-being is an area that's getting a lot more attention at the moment. And it's been part of the center's approach in our safety climate survey for a long time, part of our culture diagnostics for a long time. And so we do have some interesting results to share, um, but we would love to hear how confident um, people in the audience are responding to these sorts of concerns and understanding this as well. Cool. All right, I'll share that now, Amy. Thanks, Sarita.
did enough chatting over that time. <laughs> so we've got uh, moderately confident, 67%, and then not at all confident um, at 33%. Um, to, be, to be honest, uh, I, I probably, that's a bit more of a positive result than I had probably expected, but that, that's great. So obviously wellbeing is becoming more on the radar um, within a lot of different mining organisations. What does our data tell us, Amy, around uh, the wellbeing results? Yep, so what we can see here um, is one of the important questions that we ask is how work is impacting your wellbeing outside of work. And so it's either having a positive impact on your experiences and your wellbeing outside of work, uh, neutral or no impact or a negative impact. And so for the mining sector, we can see here, we've only got 22% that are sitting at a positive impact, which is one in five. Um, and we can see here 45% saying that it doesn't have any impact at all. Now, some people who are listening to this might think, well, that's that's a good group to be in. It's not having a, a negative impact. Um, but I'd probably argue that work's such an important part of our day-to-day -day, that if you're feeling like what you're spending a large chunk of your life doing um, isn't contributing in a meaningful or any sort of positive way to you, that potentially that's, that's still something that you could have improved in, in your life and in your work experiences. Um, but hopefully for that group, there isn't any sort of poorer or negative outcomes if you are sitting there. Um, and 33%, which is one in three people, um, having that negative impact, which is, is the area that we really do need to be responding to and focusing on and trying to improve. Um, and so we do see that substantially below benchmark result there for site management, treating employee well-being as a top priority, um, and also offering the benefits and flexibility to help you manage work and life, um, and having the sort of policies and, and practices in place that people can call on when they need to. Um, so it's a really big opportunity area for the mining sector. Um, improving um, leadership skills can have a positive impact on this well-being. Um, and there's a strong relationship we know between leadership and well-being climate. Amy, just to ask a potentially um, very obvious question for listeners. One in three of my workforce say that work negatively impacts on their well-being. Why should I care? What does that matter? What does that matter for, for the mind? What does that matter for safety? What does it matter? Uh, yeah. Yeah, for, yeah, for the business. Yeah. So... One of the um, one of the reasons that I think you know it's been a, a big part of understanding well-being at work for org sykes and and for for centres for a long time is because we understand the impact that poor well-being has on people's mental health, um, and it's it's really wonderful that it's starting to get the attention that it needs across all organisations in Australia because. Um, I think it was in Safe Work Australia's um, most recent um, categorization of um, serious sort of work-related mental health conditions. Over 90% of them come from stress, work-related mental stress. Um, and 30-odd percent of them are related to work pressures that people are feeling. And um, this is really a big deal because by the time people get to the point of putting in a stress claim, they've actually gotten to quite a severe level of burnout. Um, and that often means that the recovery time that people have 
over that um, window is, is quite long um, and it takes them quite a bit of time before they can be back at work and performing at a high level. The, the hidden side of that is everybody who's not at the point of, of a stress claim, who is still coming to work, but isn't performing well. Um, we know it has a cognitive impact on people. We know it has an impact on their team relationships. It has an impact on if they are in a leadership role on the way they interact with their, with their team, um, the way frontline workers interact with each other. Um, if people are feeling really stressed, really short with each other, that's going to have consequences for behavior, for things being identified, for problems being solved, um, for, for incidents, for accidents. Um, and that's where I think it's not just about the people who are at that really extreme end. It's, a, it's about understanding this for everyone and what we can do to improve it. All right. Thanks, Amy. Cheers. Yep. Um, we thought that um, it would be the case that for a lot of people listening to the, the call that there might be some sort of lack of confidence about what to do around this space. And I think getting as much education as you can, spending time thinking about it and talking to people um, and is a really good starting point. Um, and we had a few considerations up here on the slide just to, to start that thought process for people. Uh, the first one being getting the data. And this can be a whole range of different ways. You could collect this uh, through a formal sort of methodology, but you could also collect it through talking to people in your organization, looking around at what's going on, um, looking at where some of those psychosocial hazards might exist for your people and understanding the work that they're doing on a day-to-day -day and what that looks like for them. Um, setting that vision, getting a sense of, of where you'd like to be, what's important to you, what are we working towards, and coming back to that when you're making decisions. Um, and getting your leaders and your supervisors to really think about the way they're interacting with their people and whether or not they're, they're demonstrating and role modeling that vision in the way they're responding to people too. Um, getting the basics right. So a lot of organizations might have this, but there might be people who are also thinking that their organization has a long way to go on those basic policies and procedures and potentially doing a bit of a, an audit across what they currently have. Um, and, and getting those things right, making sure that they're easy to access for people, that they know it's there. Um, it's really tough when you hear stories about um, people who are putting in stress claims, who then find out that there were um, opportunities and avenues available to them at a much earlier stage, um, but it never been communicated to anybody um, in their organization, including that person's leader about how they could access some of this support that is available to them. So making sure that's that's there, that it's present, that people understand it and people know how to access it. Uh, our leaders play a really big role in this too. So helping them um, understand not just the policies and procedures, but some of those um, sort of softer skills and communication skills, um, which Anne, I heard recently being turned into the idea of actually being called hard skills because they're not... Um, they may be soft, but they're not easy. Yeah. I thought that was that was quite nice too. That's clever. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so, you know, investing in our leaders to help them develop those skills can really help in that well-being space too. Um, and selecting the right leaders as well. Um, when you've got that opportunity to bring new leaders into your organization, you can think about where where that aligns with your vision. Yeah. Oh, look, I mean, we all know what it's like to work for a boss that yeah. fills us full of energy and um, and focus versus one that has the opposite effect. So, yeah, leadership does play a really big role in how people experience work. That's for yeah. sure.
Absolutely. The last one there, walk a day in the life, is just really getting that opportunity to um, understand the day-to-day experiences of your people. Um, what are the stressors? What are the pressures? And that can help you understand some of those psychosocial hazards that might exist for them as well. That's great. Thanks, Amy. Um, so what at this point in time, if anyone's got any questions they would like to put in the chat, um, I'd, well, I'd invite them to do so now. And we'll just run through a couple of other uh, quick checkpoints. Um, so, uh, Sarah, I believe that we we send out the link as part of the post email anyway. Is that is that right? Uh, yes, that's what I'll do. But I'm also just going to drop it in the chat here. Yep. So if you thank you, that'd be great. So that's um, a lovely PDF version of a lot of the results that we've talked through today. Um, so if you're interested in in having a read through. Um, learning a little bit more about the results and the safety culture model, um, safety climate survey, please, please do click on that link that Sarah's put in there. Um, or you, if you're listening to this at a later point, you can also jump on the center's website. Thanks, Amy and Sarah. And if we move to the next slide, please. Um, so the next, uh, th what this slide talks to is if you uh, are looking at taking a strategic approach to improving your safety culture, uh, this is an opportunity for you to express your interests. So a lot of uh, cultural diagnostic processes will collect data. You'll be given back a, a big ring bound folder and, uh, and it'll collect dust somewhere on the shelf. But we focus really heavily on turning insights into action. So when we run our diagnostic process, we, uh, we actually help with the implementation of, of the change that needs to be put into place through uh, really useful data through a data analytic analytics platform and, and then also uh, helping set up a structure to implement uh, the change as well. If you're interested in understanding more about that insights to action process, you'd like uh, to organise a, a quick phone call with myself or Amy or one of the team, just click yes and uh, we'll, we'll get one of the team to, to set up a meeting with you. Lovely, thank you. Okay, um, I'm just going to drop another link in this chat as well because somebody earlier, Christian, asked he must have missed last week's webinar with centres, which is also excellent. So um, the recording for that one, if you didn't get the email, is in the chat as well. Thanks, Sarah. So we'll leave it open for another minute or two for anyone to drop any questions into the chat. Can't see any come through. No, I think they called during. Yeah, it was it was lovely to have the questions during. It's it's really good. Um, maybe we should do that more often. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, look, um, if there's no other questions, then um, we can probably give people back five minutes of their day. So, Amy, thank you for such a comprehensive walkthrough of that data. Um, again, we we were only able to largely skim the surface surface of what is a very comprehensive report. It's free, it's a great discussion point. Uh, we see organizations discuss this at the executive level or even at the board level to, to self-reflect on um, their own businesses and, and what they're doing well and what's uh, what can be done better. So really do encourage you to use that free resource. And as always, get in touch um, if you have any questions for us. But Amy, thank you so much for your insights. And Sarah, thank you for hosting. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you again soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye.